0: welcome to the Express soul health and wellness podcast in each episode you'll learn from experts about the best practices and technologies to live a happier healthier and hopefully a longer life here is your host Claudia Erdenola
1: welcome to express soul health and wellness podcast we are presenting today the second part on the series about the benefits of dogs for mankind. In the first part, we had the opportunity to explore the benefits of dogs for mental, emotional, and physical uh, rehabilitation and assistance for humans. In this part, we had actually a very special presentation because we went to the Joint Base at Lagnan in San Antonio, Texas. We went there with the 802nd a uh, security forces squadron where they train all of the military working dogs for all of the branches of the military forces in the United States. So with me is Bruce, he went with me, my husband. He was uh, receiving the training today at Lagnan, uh, back in the day at Lagnan, um, 55 years ago. So you're going to see some images of him coming back to the base and recreating what it was 55 years ago, his basic training. So Bruce, tell us a little bit more about um, why you joined in the first place the Air Force? What was the reason?
2: Well, it goes back, as you said, 55 years ago when I was 19 years old. And uh, at that time, in the late 60s, the Vietnam War was underway. Uh, I was a student in the university Uh, but they had a draft and they were drafting uh, just thousands of uh, young men and women to go serve in the military. And most of them got trips to Vietnam or someplace in a combat zone in Southeast Asia. So rather than just waiting for my number to come up and uh, maybe being put on the front lines with the Marines or some other uh, group, I said, it, it probably makes sense for me to join the Air Force I could possibly learn a career, uh, I don't know, air traffic controller or electrician or something like that. So I joined, I dropped out of the university and went in the military and um, got my training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, my basic training, and uh, later to go back to get some advanced combat training and uh, military working dog training. So I was put in that section uh, the security forces. And, um, so I had duty st- my first duty stations was in uh, Colorado. After about a year, I got orders to go to Southeast Asia. Um, but uh, I like to turn back the clock a little bit to when I was a little boy. Um, I remember growing up, uh, sitting between my father's legs, watching, uh, you know, the Saturday night fights at that time, there were only three TV stations. Uh, and, uh, They went off the air at midnight, and um, I I remember watching the big picture, which was stories about the U.S. military and the kind of work that they did in World War II. My father was a World War II veteran, and I remember him telling me stories. He served in North Africa and in China and in India. He served with General Patton. And I grew up, um, when, when the TV went off and they played the national anthem, I stood up and saluted, and uh, that was a very emotional experience to me. So I grew up kind of being a a patriot. My older brother, who's now deceased, uh, served in the Air Force's uh, career, and he's passed on now. But uh, I had that military uh, heritage, I guess you could say, and uh, also my nephew retired from the Air Force as well. So it was just kind of like a family tradition and I think that wasn't unique to me. A lot of people who served, family had served. So it was just something that I felt like was my obligation. And the Vietnam War era, I felt like was, was my time to give back and, and show my contribution uh, to the protection of this society. Whether or not that was a, a just war or not, anyway, I, I felt like it was my duty and my obligation to do my part. So. That's how I got in the military, and um, again, I I thought I may be um, a pilot or air traffic controller or something along that nature, but I ended up uh, by, I guess, uh, just a selection process of being in the security forces. And also, while I was in the security forces, I said, it might make sense if I'm out on the front lines or in the jungle or in the base perimeter in a combat zone, I I might as well have a uh, military working dog with me. I had, I had the appropriate armament, but I said this would give me another force multiplier that could protect me and you know mm-hmm. protect the uh, base and so forth. So a uh, long-winded answer to your question. That's kind of how, how I decided to get in the military and how I ended up in the uh, uh, US, U.S. Air Force military working dog program.
1: Our uh, team here at Expresso Health and Wellness is all about uh, nutrition and about well-being for the body, mind, and soul. But also, it's very important for us to understand that there is no health and wellness if it's not safety and security. So we decided to make this part of the of the podcast, talking about the military working dog, and what these extraordinary dogs do for humanity. You don't know that if you are out there looking at this podcast, watching at this podcast, or listening while you drive, or so forth. But many of these dogs are overseas, in places you don't know, protecting you, as we speak. So we're going back in time, but we're going to Lagland Join Base Lagland at San Antonio, Texas, to see the airmen that are training these dogs, Bruce.
2: Yeah, the first part of the uh, podcast, again, to Claudia's point, is about civilian dogs and the contribution they make for the health and well-being of population. That would be dogs that go into nursing homes, that elderly people that are lonely, how it perks them up, kids with special needs. But the second part, the part that I got involved in, uh, was the military working dog program. And the, these dogs, as Claudius said, you don't know they're there. They're in the shadows. They're on the outer perimeter. They are, they are the protectors of the night, along with the uh, valiant uh, and brave effort of the uh, uh, security forces that handle these dogs, whether it be Air Force, Navy SEALs, Marines, uh, Navy, uh, whichever uh, group of uh, military handlers they have. But again, we wanna bring this to light We can talk about the dogs that work with civilians, but we would be remiss. Uh, It would be a big miss on our part if we didn't surface the wonderful contribution that these um, military working dogs and their handlers provide to our nation. Also, uh, one thing I'd like to point out is uh, if a a service person has experienced post-traumatic stress syndrome from uh, a wartime situation, the, the military, the Department of Defense now tries to match these dogs with these handlers when they, so they can retire along with uh, that particular soldier, airman, sailor, or whatever. It's just a tremendous effort that these canine companions of ours provide, whether on the civilian side or the military side, and we wanna bring it all to light in this series. So uh, thank you for letting me participate, Claudia, and thanks thank to the United States Air Force And particular to the 802nd at uh, Joint Base Lackland in San Antonio, Texas, Sergeant Hammer and Sergeant Russell. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Bruce. And for you out there, stay tuned because here is our wonderful episode on the military working dogs and all of the contributions that they do for humans. Thank you.
2: I'd like to extend uh, personal invitation to all military veterans, regardless of the branch of services to watch this, um, podcast that Claudia has done, Expresso health and wellness podcast, particularly the part on the military working dogs. I can't state enough how much these dogs and these servicemen, their handlers, their trainers provide in terms of safety and security for our nation. This is a wonderful synergy between man and canine, uh, a relationship that's almost beyond words in terms of the ability to describe. So please enjoy this broadcast, watch them uh, work together as a team. Uh, and again, I, I like to use the term force multiplier. You take this uh, well-trained uh, soldier, airman, marine, put them together with these well-trained canines, then they're a force to be reckoned with. So. Again, I invite all military, uh, active duty, and veterans to watch and enjoy this uh, podcast about military working dogs.
1: If you like the content of our podcast, subscribe to our channel and hit the notification button. Help us to spread the word on health and wellness. Also, check out our sponsors as we have great discounts for our listeners. And follow us in our social media outlets. We really appreciate your support. Thank you. So Sergeant Hammer, Sergeant Russell and Bruce, welcome to Express All Hell and Wellness podcast. Uh, Sergeant Hammer, before we start with the questions about the U.S. Military Working Dog Program, I would like for you Um, To tell us a little bit about yourself, I can ask the same to to Sergeant Russell in a moment. I would like to know how long have you been in the Air Force and what duty stations have you served other than the Joint Base at Lackland?
3: Okay. So, yeah, my name is Tech Sergeant Hammer. I've been in the Air Force for just over 15 years now. I've been canine for about 10 years now. My first duty station was Kadena Air Base in Japan. Then from there, I went to Barksdale in Louisiana. I've been to Inserilic, Turkey, Ramstein, Germany, and then here to Lackland Air Force Base.
1: So that is wonderful. Um, Have you been always a canine uh, handler and and now trainer and supervisor? Or did you have um, another AFSC, as my husband told me, that is Air Force Specialty Code? Other specialties.
3: So all canine in the Air Force is security forces. So we started our career out as regular security forces doing normal duties from gate guard duties, patrolman duties, security duties. And then it's a train into canine. So we still hold the same AFSC. It's just a shred out identified with an A at the end of our AFSC. Um, and I've been doing canine uh, security forces since 2012.
1: Wonderful. Sergeant uh, Russell, so tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been in the Air Force?
0: Yes, man. I've been in the Air Force for 10 and a half years. I'll be at 11 in August. Um, My first duty station was Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I was there for almost four years. After that, I went to joint base Elmendorf Richardson in Alaska. I was there for three, and now I'm at JBSA Lackland. And I've been seven years. I started at my first duty.
1: Wonderful. So, welcome you both, and um, I'm gonna tell you that most of our audience, um, uh, they are uh, civilians and probably dog lovers. And I would like for you, uh, Sergeant Hammer, to tell us in your words what is the U.S. military working dog program.
3: So, pretty much the program is uh, all the dogs trained in the DoD are either patrol capabilities, which is to find somebody hiding in the woods or apprehension of somebody that uh, isn't where they're supposed to be or doing what they're, they're being told. Uh, also, they're there to detect explosives or narcotics.
1: Wonderful. And that program is only conducted at the Lagland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, or there are other locations where you guys do this training?
3: So their initial training, which is kind of the equivalent to somebody joining the military, we call it like their basic training. All their basic training for the dogs are here at Lackland. And then once they get certified here at Lackland, they get distributed out to each base where they'll work.
1: That's wonderful. So um, I understand that the program was established in 1942. And um, back in those days, I believe all of the dogs that you guys were training back in- and then, they were adopted dogs. Then later, the Air Force were bringing the dogs from Germany. Um, but now, what are the breeds that you guys are using on the U.S. military working dog program?
3: So the two primary breeds that the Air Force or the DOD uses in general is the Belgian Malinois and the German Shepherds.
1: Okay. And and uh, so, Sergeant Russell, that you are uh, working so close with these dogs. Um, what are the, the the selection process for the dogs?
0: So that's all ran over at the 341st Training Squadron. They have a consignment team. They'll go overseas or they'll go somewhere on the East Coast, depending on where the vendor is, and they'll run these dogs through do their own check, own trials to make sure that they meet their standards. So that's just detection standards and aggression standards. And then once they pass, if they do, Then they'll go ahead with the purchase. The team will come back to Lackland and then they'll wait to receive the dogs and then they'll start their training.
1: That is wonderful. So I understand that you um, at the Air Force have your own breeding program right now. Is that correct, uh, Sergeant Russell? Yes, it is. So you're breeding these puppies and you have them the entire time until you start the, the training program or how that works?
0: Yeah, so they're, they're born and bred here at St. Lackland. They have a team, all civilian base. They were all prior service members. And yes, they are, the dogs are born and bred here. Um, I think if I remember correctly, after about a month, they go to a foster within the city of San Antonio just to socialize, just to be normal dogs. And then once they hit their seven month mark, they come back to the puppy program to start their training.
1: So you start with the dogs at seven months old, and how long it will take to have a fully trained dog ready to take, uh, you know, duty missions?
0: So out of the actual puppy program, they go through five months of training. So once they hit one year old, they start their confinement test. Um, If they have that's when they go on to, let's say, like their tech school, at the 341st Training Squadron, and that's when they'll further develop their detection and their patrol training. And that's another, what, six months? And that's another six months, roughly. If they pass that, then like Sergeant Hammer said, they'll go to their individual bases within the DOD.
1: That's great. So Sergeant Hammer, uh, my husband was there at Lagland where you are right now, you both, uh, receiving this training as a dog handler in 1968. He was only 19 years old, so if you made the 15 55, 55 years ago, more than a half a century, and um, that is before you guys born and also me, so that has been a long time ago. And um, I would like for Bruce to tell us how was the the military working uh, dog program back uh, in those days, and I would like for you guys and for you. Um, Uh, Sergeant Hammer, to contrast how is the program today based on what Bruce is going to tell us. Bruce, how was the program back in 1968 when you joined the Air Force?
2: I'm going to take you guys back in time. Um, I feel like George Washington came back and is talking about how it was to cross the Delaware during the Revolutionary War. Going back in time in 1968 when I was at Lackland, I did my basic training in Lackland, and then I did patrol dog training in Lackland as well before I shipped out to Southeast Asia. But back in 1968, the program was referred to as a sentry dog program, and uh, the objective was to make the dogs as mean as you could. And uh, the training methods were aggressiveness training, uh, agitation training, even stake agitation training. If if you're familiar with that. I, I doubt you do that uh, these days. Um, so the objective was to make the meaner the dog, the better. Uh, and it was usually one handler, one dog. So once you got this dog to this state of agitation and aggressiveness, it was difficult if a, if an airman got discharged, if a handler got discharged, to changed duty stations for somebody else to come in and take that dog. I remember one dog in particular, his name was Lucky. He was part German Shepherd and part husky. And this guy was so mean. When you went up to his kennels, he was, had his teeth all over it, uh, to go in and take lucky from his handler, uh, took, uh, took a lot of courage. So that's kind of what the tone of training was at that time. I, I also went back, um, for retraining after that. So they switched from the attack dog, sentry dog program to the patrol dog, which the philosophy was a dog should be able to transition from one handler to the next, and it was much more of controlled aggression. Uh, so uh, in, in terms of our method of training, we use, we still use choke chains. We use spike chains. Actually, I remember the day when the uh, the uh, person who you let the dog on was wearing those big burlap space suits, you know, padding from head to toe, uh, and then I, I, I was there during the period of my movement from those big burlap suits to a wrap on the arm, which catch the dog in the arm. And th- the day I went through and I had to catch all the dogs of, of the squadron, uh, was a bad day. Um, because, uh, even though they didn't penetrate the wrap, uh, there was enough pressure on the arm that your arm was black and blue at the end of the day. So not necessarily a fun day, a lot of anxiety, um, uh, of course, I was catching shepherds, not the Malamoirs. So I'm very, very excited about seeing those dogs. I watch videos on YouTube and they're so athletic. I mean, they, they seem to fly. They're they're like the Michael Jordan of dogs in, in my mind. But uh, anyway, we, we went from the burlap suit to the arm wrap. Um, and we use principally, right out of the manual, praise and correction. We didn't give the dog's treats or give him any other reward other than praise. Uh, you correct them, uh, you, you praise them, and uh, of course you use the, the command voice, like, you know, heal, uh, stay, down, you know, or maybe two words, get him. So that's kind of the tone uh, of what was going on 55 years ago where you are today. So if, if you guys, Sergeant Russell, uh, And Sergeant Hammer might contrast a little bit about the methodology used today compared to what was going on in ancient history 55 years ago. Okay. So, I mean, to be complete,
0: not much has changed in terms of the the fundamentals in training. Um, When I started as a handler, and I'm sure Sergeant Hammer can attest to this, it was a lot more compulsion-based, which is just using... um, physical force to gain compliance from the dog. Um, now, as more handlers are coming through and the program becomes more advanced, um, it's a lot more inducive based, which means that they're just trying to learn how the dog learns best uh, and apply that to gain the most effective training without having to correct the dog and you know possibly shutting them down or having them aggress on their handler.
2: I remember having, um, well, I I had three dogs. Um, one was was a male, his name was Caesar. And when we first got to know each other, Caesar would test me. He'd, he'd wrap his leg around my leg. And I knew that's what a dog does when they're ready to jump another dog. They tried to get over their back. He put his leg around me and I had to break him of that. Uh, another dog I had was a female dog and, uh, all, all the other guys would ki- uh, kind of kid me because I, I had a female dog, you know, hey, get your, and you know, they had the cute words for my, my girl. Uh, but anyway, that dog had the strongest bite. She was, she was little, she was fast and nobody wanted to catch her. I, I, I love that dog so much that, uh, believe it or not, I named my first child after that dog, uh, my first daughter, the name of Sherry was the name of the dog my daughter may not, uh, like to tell that story that she was named after a dog, but really, uh, she was, I, I thought so much of that animal. I, and, and she was the only child of four that I had. that was born in a, in the air force hospital at Seymour Johnson, air force base in Goldsboro, North Carolina. She cost me $5 and 25 cents. So if you're going to have any kids, have them in the air force because they cost thousands of dollars when you get out. So anyway, that, that, uh, that was kind of um, what we did in terms of training the different dogs you can't let them dominate you they have you have to I'm telling you guys something you know you're the experts I mean I did this a half a century ago but I think some of the principles are still the same you have to have that commanding voice and that commanding presence with these uh, amazing animals and I might back up a little bit the whole reason for this production is we're doing a podcast this is kind of phase two of a two-part program, and we're talking about the benefits of uh, canines or dogs to uh, humanity. The first part of the episode uh, talks about uh, civilian dogs going into nursing homes, going to kids with problems, kids with special needs, kids with attitudinal problems, and the benefit and the health benefits that these animals can bring to our society. Uh, also our podcast is about health and wellness and staying vital you know whether that's exercise, diet, uh, whether it's different interventions, technologies but all of that would fall into insignificance if if we didn't have safety and security and that's what you guys do and that's what our military does uh, with these animals uh, that you become a force multiplier if you take a dog handler, who's well-trained, and you take this animal with all the extra senses they have, the sense of smell, the sense of uh, hearing, the the sensitivity of hearing, uh, the bite, the strength, the athletic ability to run 30 miles an hour to chase down, uh, you know, an adversary, whatever the situation may be. Uh, This is what this is all about. I mean, everybody has dogs or, or dog lovers, as Claudia would say. But again, our mission is to talk about the contribution that these animals bring to humanity. So that's why we get, that's why we're meeting with you guys on this program. That's why we thank the U.S. Air Force for allowing this and thank you guys for your participation. And we look very much forward. I do in particular, coming back to Lackland in two weeks, meeting you guys and seeing you put your dogs through the paces. So, Claudia, I, I kind of went off script a little bit, but back to you.
1: This is perfect because we want to learn from you, um, guys, uh, all of these capabilities that these amazing dogs that Guy gave us as companion in this human life that they have and and how um, they are serving to, to uh, you know, keep us safe and protect us. But also all of those uh, beautiful characteristics from a dog. and and how they can be companionship and help others to recover from physical and mental wounds. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But um, just to, I would like to to, um, also understand a little better, um, Sergeant uh, Hammer, what are those uh, tasks uh, for the dogs? What are the dogs trained to do? In the uh, under the program, under the military working dog program?
3: So if they're an explosive dog, they're trained to detect a wide variety of explosive odors. Uh, some of the basic odors, E4, TNT, stuff like that, um, as well as our narcotic dogs, which are your basic narcotics, you would find cocaine, marijuana, and stuff like that. Uh, The patrol side of the house, uh, what we like to call scouts, where imagine somebody's hiding in the wood line or something like that. uh, We would tell the dog to find them and they would search out a person
1: that we're looking for. So all all of the dogs are trained on all of the tasks or there are some that are trained for a specific purpose only?
3: The majority of the dogs in the DOD, depending on their training and if they're able to do it, are patrol trained. And then it depends on what they're identified when they start their training. So they're either an explosive detector dog or a narcotic detector dog. They only detect one or the other.
1: Okay. So since the beginning of the program in 1942, uh, the Air Force has been training the dogs for all the military branches. That is still continues until today? Is the same? Correct. Every single dog we see uh, on the military branches in the U.S., they have been trained a Lagland Air Force. Uh, base with you guys. Okay, so that's wonderful. Um let's talk about these heroic animals because I I was actually going through some uh research on some of these heroic uh dogs, um canines that we we have seen during the history, especially since since the program started. And um, there had been two uh there's so many, but we're gonna mention two that Um, they stand up. So the the first one is basically most on Bruce's time, and actually Bruce remembers this dog uh, by the name of Nemo during the Vietnam era. It was a very decorated dog, and I would like Bruce to tell us a little bit about Nemo. Uh,
2: Yeah, uh, when when I uh, served, um, and by the way, Sergeant Russell, I was at Colorado Springs, too, at Air Force Base, uh, and uh, served at NORAD, Cheyenne Mountain Complex. Uh, and I was also at Kadena uh, as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the dog that I remember, in, we shipped out to uh, Southeast Asia. Most of the dogs, we, we hopefully had a, a round trip there and back. Some of my brothers didn't make it back. But all the dogs had a one-way ticket. Because uh, when they shipped out to Southeast Asia, there was concern from the DOD or the Air Force or the military in general, these dogs would bring back parasites from that part of the world. So they spent the rest of their life on duty over there. Uh, but Nemo, uh, obviously, uh, was, was in a firefight and uh, was credited for saving, I don't know how many people, 13, 14 people. Uh, and also he was, uh, I, I think he alone, uh, took out about seven of the enemy at that time. Nemo had his, uh, muzzle shot off, uh, and he was brought back to Lackland and had a special kennel and lived the rest of his life at Lackland. So that was a, my time. I, I hope to possibly meet maybe his fifth great grandson from that era. If I'm at Lackland, I know that's probably not going to happen, but uh, that, was, that was a special animal and, and just kind of indicative of the heroic things and the capabilities these dogs are capable of doing in protecting our forces that are deployed in hostile situations. Um, I mean, they, they become such a, such a partner with, with their handlers and it's such a relationship. Uh, it's a big word, ineffable. Words can't describe the kind of relationship because we can't talk to them but we talk in another language. There's such a relationship and such an understanding. Again, I use the term force multiplier. You take me with my limited sense of smell, my limited uh, hearing and and, and eyesight, and you you amplify that through a dog's ability and you bond as a team. Uh, That's what Nemo did. And he deserved to live the life of royalty the rest of his life at Lackland where he started. The other dog um, was a dog named Cairo, and it's more of your time, and he was involved in the Bin Laden raid in Pakistan. So I was I was wondering, uh, since this was only like in, I think, 2011, you guys may have been on duty at Lackland and actually trained Cairo or maybe knew his handlers or trainers. Do you, do you remember that particular dog? He was um, Malinois.
3: Yeah, so the Special Forces dogs... Um... They go through a different set of training. So, and here at the 802nd, we just train our specific dogs here for the 802nd. All the initial training are over at the, and then once they're distributed out from there.
2: So he was with SEAL Team Six that went over to Pakistan.
1: Yeah. We were mentioning two heroic dogs one was a German Shepherd, and the other one was a Belgian Melamois. And I understand that now, in, in during the program right now, actually you guys are shifting from from the German Shepherd to the to the Belgian Malinois. Can you tell us a little bit um, what are uh, basically the considerations for from shifting from that breed to the Malinois? Uh,
3: they still use both breeds. Um, the breeding program itself does Belgian Malinois. Um, but the difference in the two dogs just really longevity of health. The shepherds are a little bit bigger, and sometimes their their hips aren't aren't the best. So when it comes to longevity of working, the Belgian Malinois seem to last a little bit longer and have less health issues um, later in life.
1: Okay, yeah, so they're lighter too. We have seen them some of the of the YouTube uh, videos when they are jumping with the handler out of the helicopters and airplanes. And it seems like uh, easier to handle in terms of the weight than, than the shepherd because it's lighter, correct?
2: Uh, what is the average bite strength of, whether it's a Malinois or typical German Shepherd? What, what kind of bite pressure uh, do these animals have once they latch onto someone?
0: Personally, I don't know the actual numerical value of their, uh, their bite force. But in my experience coming up, I've seen that Malinois typically have a stronger bite. Um, I don't know if Son Hammer can pass that or not.
3: Yeah, I mean, it also depends on the size of the dog, too. Bigger dogs obviously have bigger mouths and muscles and whatnot, so they'll have a harder bite force. But the Malinois have so much more speed that it feels like they're hitting you harder than a German Shepherd is.
2: Yeah, I I, I, I watched some of the videos and you know I've experienced it where full speed when they hit you, uh, they can almost take you down, you know, just in the pure uh, biting on your sleeve and the force of, of the speed almost can take you off your feet. And that's not desirable, I don't think, because I I was taught tell me if I'm wrong, or if, or if things have changed, and when the when the when the dog comes at you you place your forearm in its mouth. That's where you want it to be. Uh, because if it, it nose touches the wrap and goes above, he's going to come at your face. If it goes below your arm, he's going to go to other places. You don't want him to go. So I, I assume that principle still exists.
3: Yeah. There's different techniques to funneling and whatnot like that. If you're wearing the, just the sleeve or the full suit. Um, but pretty much it's targeting the dog and what area of the body they're going to, to bite and how you're going to funnel them from there.
2: So in terms of general reasons, whether you use a Malamois or whether you use a shepherd, why that breed versus my neighbor walks by every day and they've got this beautiful, beautiful Doberman pincer, big girl. And, uh, why aren't they using, uh, other breeds like uh, Doberman's in- instead of shepherds? What is the principal reason? to use the shepherd or the Malinois, which I think Malinois is part shepherd anyway.
3: Uh, I don't know the exact reason why they picked those, but uh, from what I know, basically, they're bred to work, basically. So these dogs are born ready to work, and it's just tapping into those natural... in order to what we want them to do.
1: Bruce told me, actually, um, uh, Sergeant Hammer, that... that, um, when he was back, you know, when he was working as a dog handler in Southeast Asia, they did have some of, of dogs that were like mixed breed, like, like a shepherd uh, mixed with a husky. But later on the program, correct me, Bruce, if I'm wrong. Um, basically, as you were going on more and more years on the program, uh, the Air Force discovered that the Shepherds and the Malamois uh they adapt better to the climates. They can rapidly go from, you know, from places that is very cold to places that are very hot. They really adapt faster as other breeds of dogs that may have too much hair or no hair at all. They can adapt to those changes of climate. Is that correct, Bruce?
2: This is what I learned back then. You could take a shepherd to Greenland or you could take a shepherd to Panama near the equator. They can adapt to the cold. They could adapt to the heat. So their adaptability of uh, a Doberman pincer, you can't walk in, a you know, Greenland or North Dakota. They'd free, you know, they They don't have long hair. They don't have that inner coat that can protect them against those elements. OK, so would you would you, would you concur with that, uh, Sergeant Hammer? Yeah,
3: definitely. Um and as you guys know, there's military bases all across the world. So having a dog be able to adapt right. type of climate is is definitely good.
1: Wonderful. Right. So now I would like to ask you also. It is my understanding that um, one handler is assigned to one dog, unless you know the, that handler is out of uh, out of duty or or wounded on transfer or whatever but mostly what is the reason and to have the handler one handler one dog is that strong bond of connection that emotional bond between both um an important factor on uh, let's say the success of the missions that they have to carry on would you say that
3: yeah definitely and um the dogs nowadays don't have one specific handler their entire career while they're stationed here at Lackland. The dogs are assigned here to Lackland and they spend their entire career here at Lackland or whatever base they get sent off to. But as handlers, we come and go. So while the dog's working, they'll be assigned the handler that's here until that handler leaves. But we don't like to switch around uh, frequently if we don't have to because it's building trust. You know, As people, if you have a partner that you work with every single day, um, the longer you work together, the better you guys get at just knowing what each other are thinking without even having to say it. And that's the same thing for humans and dogs. You can come into work and just see the emotional change in a dog, whether they're having a good day or a bad day. And it just builds the trust more.
1: So we're talking about uh, a lot of loyalty and intelligence and problem solving from these dogs. These are some of the capabilities that we observe in the serving dogs. As you know, through the history. And I would like to talk a little bit about the emotional intelligence, because um, it, it's a little bit overlooked. And as we see the bond between the humans and dogs, you know, is, it, it came centuries and centuries ago. Um, they have been a special companion for humans. And when you combine the human and the dog in a special, training as as the military working dog program that become um, in a strong force. So let's talk about that emotional intelligence, the dogs that go, you know, on these hard duties and this uh, very difficult task overseas. What happened with them when they retire?
3: So all the dogs uh, that retire now, if they meet all uh, medical and their uh, like all the dogs that are in they have to go through an evaluation to make sure that they can go to a home and be basically a house dog. So if they pass all those requirements, uh, the vet looks them over, um, our program over, and if they pass all of that, then they can go home with their last handler. So the last handler will adopt them pretty much, and then they become a house dog. They get to do everything that a house dog normally gets to do and live out the rest of his life there.
2: Going through a combat zone, whether it was – Iraq, Afghanistan, or, you know, my generation, Vietnam era, pretty tough mentally on someone. So coming back home and getting adjusted to, to civilian life after you've gone through experiences like that can can be very difficult, you know, just trying to re-socialize yourself in society. Are there special uh, privileges for guys that may be suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome or or as my father used to call it in World War II, shell shock, uh, would would they get priority of maybe getting a dog they worked with or a dog in general as a companion to help them readjust to civilian life?
3: Uh, if it's a specific dog that they worked, it's all up to the kennel. So the military likes to put everything on paper. So the paper says the previous hand, the um but... If you know, we all work together. We all talk to each other. If there's people that have put out there, like, "Hey, I've worked this dog for three years, but I'm PCS and here when she comes up, or he comes up for retirement, I want to retire her." So there's really no kind of like, "Oh, this guy's gonna take him, or that guy's gonna take him." It's it's all based off of that. Handlers in the past have been talking to each other and whatnot.
2: Well, you know, this this conversation's in prelude for us actually coming down in two weeks and hanging out with you guys, you giving us a demonstration of the working dog teams. We're so excited about that. It, particularly me, uh, it's like reliving my footsteps. So I'm, I'm excited about that, but I have a special request. Uh, and I told my wife, Claudia, I want one of those uh, puppies, one of those Malamu, uh, puppies, uh, Malinois puppies. Uh, but I, I, now we got a little bitty Boykin Spaniel girl that wears a pink, collar. And I said, Claudia, I want a real dog. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I, I've fallen in love with those Malamois because they're, they're super athletes, you know, I mean, I, I love shepherds and I had shepherds, uh, since I've gotten out of the military. And, uh, I know, uh, she's got a whole closet full of shoes that she'd probably lose, but I'd love to get one of those puppies. So, uh, we'll, we'll talk on the side, see how I might be able to do that. But uh, I need I need a little rehabilitation too. It's only been Bye. since nineteen fifty five years ago. I've been out of the mystery. Yeah, but I I still I'm still a little shaky, you know. I I, I need comfort. So I think um, we gotta anyway. have a lot
1: of fun seeing those dogs in action. And we thank you, both of you and, and the US Air Force first to facilitate this podcast, and then for the dog demonstration that we're going to see in two weeks from now, although our listeners, uh, by the time that they see this podcast, we had been already there, and they going to enjoy uh, some of the images of the demonstration included in this podcast, so that's going to be all fun. And again, this is like the continuation of our series on dogs and how this. God-given animals came to the humans' lives to enhance comp- uh, as a companionship and help us to be a better human. I truly totally believe that um, they're here to provide us safe and security as the dogs that you guys trained did, but also love companionship and help us to, uh, you know, get better mentally and physically and spiritually, so to speak. So I thank you both very much. That has been a very nice talk, and I think our listeners have a good idea now on what is the uh, United States military working dog program that you conducted there at the Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. So thanks for your time, and thanks for your service once again, and thank you, Bruce, for your previous service in Southeast Asia uh, 55 years ago. We're going to learn a lot about these dogs when we go there to San Antonio. Can No way.
2: Well, I, yeah. I, I just love bringing you guys to uh, our listening public who probably all are dog lovers. They'll see one side on the civilian, how they help people rehabilitate, whether it's kids with special needs, whether it's people in nursing homes, elderly people that are lonely, uh, or whether it's the work that you guys do and the, the handlers that take those dogs and go in the harm's way and protect us because health and wellness is what our podcast is about but that is insignificant unless you have security and that's what you guys do is secure our freedom and what you do is extremely extremely valuable and uh, we just want to raise that into the light of day and let people appreciate the the sacrifices that you make the effort you put forth and appreciate the value of the work you do i right. since since military I went back to college, and I've been in the boardrooms of some of the biggest corporations in in the world. But I always say that my military experience was grounding, and I, I I was in situations that said that said if I ever survive this, I can do anything, and that is the basis, the foundation of what encouraged me to go through life and be successful. The hardships and the, the sacrifices that you make in the military. And maybe you won't see this now, but in a few years when you retire and start your second career in civilian life, you'll realize how important this was. And the older you get, the more, the more you'll appreciate it. So I look forward and I thank you very much. I thank the United States Air Force for allowing this um, uh, program to be uh, broadcast. And we really look forward to coming on base at Joint Base Lackland, and seeing what you guys do and seeing what your handlers and trainers do with these dogs. We're g- Let's put on a show.
1: Thank you very much, gentlemen. I appreciate it. All nice of you. Nice meeting you. And to our audience out there, don't miss this episode and look at the episode one of the series of two. Um, and remember, until next time, stay healthy and remember that health. Is wealth for the body, mind, and soul. Take care. Bruce, how does it feel turning back the clock 55 years?
2: 55 years is a long time to turn the clock back. I feel many emotions, and I'm thankful to have this opportunity to meet these men and women airmen at Lackland Air Force Base, as well as their magnificent animals that provide such a valuable service for our safety and security as individuals and as a nation.
1: So you're right. Our Express All Health and Wellness podcast, it is about health and wellness. But health and wellness means very little if we are not safe and secure. So tell us, Bruce, what we may see at lagland
2: I think we've got a surprise in order, but also what you're going to see is real heroes, men and women who have been in the U.S. Air Force military working dog programs for years. You're going to see canines and the men and women who have sworn an oath to give their lives as necessary for our safety and well-being, as well as these canines who also sign up in their own way to pay the ultimate sacrifice if necessary. I like the saying, all give some, but some give all. After my training in Lackland 55 years ago, I was sent to a combat zone in Southeast Asia. At that time, the Vietnam War was going on. That was 1968 and 69. I was sent as an air commando to the 56th Special Operations Security Forces Unit. The dogs that made the journey when we went over would get a one-way trip because at that time, the Department of Defense policy was that you sent the dogs over there to do their duty but they never got the chance to come back home because there was concern about them picking up parasites and different kind of diseases that were not native to the united states and bringing those back home so they got a one-way trip i will point out one exception this special dog his name is nemo Nemo was credited with saving his handler's life in a combat situation, and not only that, he saved about 16 other military men on the US side and ended up eliminating about seven to nine of the enemy troops. That's a very special dog. They're all heroes. They never get through this program without having special characteristics, but some stand out. So Nemo's one. I think we've got some photos of Nemo, a, basically a statue, a memorandum to his great contributions to the United States military services. Okay, let's go on and watch Staff Sergeant Gavoric, our handler today, who's going to be demonstrating, put her dog, Coulahan, through the paces. Basically, initially, basic obedience training. By the way, Coulihan is a Belgian Malinois, which is becoming now the mainstay in the military working dog programs in the U.S. military. These dogs are chosen because of their intelligence, their athletic ability. Some can run in excess of 30 miles an hour. No human being even approaches that. Their bite pressure is over 700 pounds per square inch. Their sense of smell is incredible, about 2,000 times uh, greater than humans, and they're hearing about 1,000 times greater than uh, humans. So you add the combination of this canine and a well-trained handler with the appropriate weaponry as well, you have a tremendous force multiplier. You can see that Staff Sergeant Gavoric is a small person. However, she and Coolehan are a force to be reckoned with. You could get the most badass MMA or UFC fighter, but they wouldn't stand a chance against this duo.
1: So we have a little surprise for our audience. That's right, Bruce?
2: Well, it may be little for you, but it's pretty big for me. I, I've asked the military working dog team here at Lackland, actually ask them before we made the flight, if in fact they would mind suiting me up to be the bad guy that Sergeant Gavoric turns her dog loose on. And unfortunately, they've granted my wish. So be careful what you ask for. You just may get it. So Staff Sergeant Gavorik is going to turn her dog loose on me. So Sergeant Hammer and Sergeant Russell will assist me in getting the appropriate wrap and suit to be the intruder for Cullahan to um, have fun with.
1: That's great. So about the suit that you're going to wear today for this attack, is that the same type of suit that you wore when you were under the training 55 years ago at Laglan or is different?
2: In 55 years, of course, things changed. At that time, it wasn't even called the Military Working Dog Program. It was called the Sentry Dog Program. We used different techniques of training the dogs. We used different attire we actually used a huge burlap suit that went from your, your neck all the way to your ankles to protect any part of your body that the dog could conceivably bite after time went on and this happened during my tenure in the air force and i went back to what they call advanced patrol dog training because they were moving from a sentry dog program to a patrol dog training program in that program the suit went away. You took that big burlap suit off and you used a canvas wrap just on your forearm, your forearm or choice. What did you want to lose most, your left forearm or your right forearm? You choose. And I remember one day during my training here at Lackland 55 years ago, that I was the guinea pig. I was to catch all of the dogs that day. And that was not necessarily a day I was looking forward to because all the guys in the squadron came out marching with their badass dogs. And some of them were really badass. And I was the object of their punishment that day. So they would turn their dogs loose on you and encourage them to get him. And they would latch onto your arm and just shake it till you felt like it was going to come off your elbow. But at the end of the day, when you took that wrap off, your arm was black and blue. Although there was slight penetration of the canvas, really didn't get to the meat, but the pressure was enough to make you feel like, you know, it took weeks for it to heal. But anyway, that has changed the suit, the technique, the nature of training the dogs. They're much more command dogs than they used to be. Uh, we used to use steak agitation and just quite frankly, to make the dog as mean as and ferocious as possible. It also made it much more difficult for one trainer to take another dog. For example, maybe their trainer was uh, shipped to a different duty station and then you had to go in and take, I remember one, one dog that I had to take over, his name was Lucky. He was half German Shepherd and half Alaskan Malamute big dog, but ferocious. Loved his handler, but he hated everybody else. So had to go in and kind of suck up to Lucky and figure out how I was going to gain his trust. That was different. Today, it's much easier for you to take for handlers to interchange dogs. So things have changed, but I think a lot of the basics are still the same. The force multiplier, the ability for uh, you to bond with the dog, the intelligence of the animal. It's just, again, I don't think most people realize it, but it's the real force.
1: So let's go see the attack. Bruce, what was the experience like? Were you afraid?
2: I have to be honest. Quite frankly, I did have some anxiety, but going back to my time at Lackland 55 years ago kind of prepared me for some of this. I felt the dog, I was very curious about the amount of pressure I was going to receive, you know, whether the dog would turn loose when given commands by the the handler. It has a strong bite. I was anxious, but glad I did it.
1: So that's great to hear, Bruce. If you don't mind, would you please agree to get attacked again? (laughs) I would like to capture the bites and the attack on slow motion.
2: This is my wife talking. She wants me to get attacked again. So you're kidding me or are you serious?
1: No, one more time, please.
2: Okay. I guess you know my life insurance is paid up, so why not? Let's do it.
1: This concludes our military working dogs demonstration for our audience. But please keep in mind the services that these men, women, and canine heroes provide for us.
2: And I want to say, before we conclude, thanks to my brothers, Tech Sergeant Hammer, Tech Sergeant Russell, and Staff Sergeant Gavoric, And a special thanks to the beautiful Belgian Malino Cullahan, the dog that participated in this demonstration today. Even though it's military people, we're separated by a number of years, different assignments. I consider all of you as my family. My best wishes to all of you, no matter where the Air Force sends you and your military working dogs, you'll all be in my prayers. I love you all. And my deepest gratitude to the United States Air Force and the Joint Base Lackland Air Force Base for allowing the production of this podcast and on-site demonstration with the military working dogs. podcast. I would appreciate it if you would like it and please subscribe as it is a free of charge service and my wife Claudia produces a program every Thursday on health and wellness. Me returning to Lackland Air Force Base after 55 years is the first in several journeys in retracing my military uh, footsteps and my military service as I am planning trips to regions in Thailand, Laos, Vietnam and the Philippines and other countries as well. I want to visit these lands to see what's changed, just like when I visited Lackland to see what's changed after 55 years. Uh, I want to experience once more the sights, the smells, uh, the sounds, and the taste of the food. My wife, Claudia, will be joining me, and we want to take you all with us on these adventures. I know that thousands of you have served in these regions, as I have. I am a member of Together We Served, as I'm sure many of you are, Vietnam Veterans of America, the Thai, Laotian, and Cambodia Brotherhoods. Will we be adding our podcast to Together We Served and hopefully other veteran and military as well as civilian sites, and we would love to connect with you. So please leave your comments below. Uh, we want to hear from you. And I also wanted to say, this quote stands in my mind, the late Steve Jobs stated it wisely. You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in the future. So we're looking back to connect to our future. So join me and Claudia in connecting the dots.
1: We bring this content free of charge to our audience and we appreciate very much your support so please subscribe and hit the notification bell so you will be notified every time we post new content help us to spread the word on health and wellness and remember health is wealth for the body mind and soul see you next thursday
0: Thank you very much for listening. And if you like the information that we shared with you today, please subscribe to the Express Soul Health and Wellness podcast and follow us in the social media outlets of your choice. Until next time, please remember, health is wealth for the body, mind and soul.